G'day everyone, and hello to the people in the other halls and other places and all that sort of thing. Uh, it's exciting, this is my first Sunday back, well first Sunday back preaching for Six City Church since being on holiday, but it does feel like uh, things are happening, God willing. Uh, at the moment we are the safest place on earth, do you know that, to be a church? We're the one place the New South Wales government says you have to be four square metres and wear a mask. So uh, if you want to say to people, be safe from COVID, come to church. You know, and that has so many multiple layers of meaning. So, uh, But now let's get into Revelation chapter 12. I'm going to pray and then we're going to look at this great chapter together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity to return to this book of Revelation. And Father, even though sometimes we struggle to understand it with all its vivid pictures and images, uh, we pray for your help in doing that now. Uh, But as well as help in understanding it, we pray that you'll help us to trust it and believe it and live by it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'm not really uh, into books and movies about dragons and wizards and all that sort of stuff. Uh, Some people really love that sort of thing. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because some people judge people for being into that sort of stuff. Uh, I don't mind it, just not really my thing. Uh, I've always loved the Lord of the Rings though. So uh, even when I was, you know, I read the Lord of the Rings probably 20 times when I was a kid. Uh, So much so that when Victoria and I got married, I made her read the Lord of the Rings uh, because she hadn't read it. And I thought that was a massive gap in her knowledge of the world. Uh, And then the movies came out and I made her go with me to see all the movies. That's how much Victoria loves me, you see. She was willing to do that. Uh, But some of you I know, I've talked to some of you, some of you guys love that sort of stuff. And some preachers love using the Lord of the Rings and especially Narnia in their sermons. Uh, When I first became a Christian uh, and didn't know Narnia as well, actually I knew the Lord of the Rings, didn't know Narnia as well, but every week uh, the minister at the church I was at when I became a Christian, it it felt like every week anyway, he would say, and that is just like Aslan the Lion in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. I'll have to read it, yeah, you know. Well, that's like when Frodo crossed into Mordor carrying the ring, you know. Uh, but I worked out some time ago that for every person for whom that is a great illustration, you go, yeah, it is just like Aslan the Lion, that's just like Frodo. There is another person sitting here who says, what on earth is he talking about? Again, I won't ask for a show of hands. And there is another person sitting here, in fact, it's probably a lot of you saying, I mean, who wastes their time watching movies about dragons and wizards and all that sort of nonsense? Now, I do not want to divide the church on secondary matters. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands of which camp you're in. Uh, but if you are someone who loves that sort of stuff, uh, well, this is the chapter of the Bible for you. You are no longer oppressed. This is your night. So, uh, and in fact, the next three weeks... Because for this chapter and for this whole little section, chapter 12 to 14, John uses pictures and images. It reads like a fantasy novel. It's dragons, it's beasts, it's all these sort of things. And it really does read like that. So this one is for you guys. So bask in it. And for those of you who hate that sort of stuff, well, I want to say to you, it's God's word, so bad luck. So listen, let's get into it. Come with me to chapter 12. Uh, Because it's been a month or so since we paused our studies in the book of Revelation and excitingly, uh, not just new student ministers, but some people have joined us since then as well. So you're coming in halfway through the book of Revelation, but it's great that you're with us. So just to remind you, this book of Revelation is unlike any other part of the Bible. So if you've come to church tonight for the very first time and your first exposure to the Bible is Revelation chapter 12, this is not normal. This is not all the Bible, uh, is not all like this. Uh, What Revelation is... Uh, is the Apostle John sharing these visions that God had given him. 
Uh, and the visions are full of symbols. It's giving us a sort of a, a symbolic picture of this reality in which we live. It's sort of a symbolic picture of the spiritual reality of the physical world, of the, the, the history we're living in. And so we get these pictures of history where it explains to us that pain and suffering and tyranny and all those sorts of things are going to happen if you live as a Christian in this world that we live in. Uh, but then each time it shows us that behind that, God is still in control. And so you remember we've had, it usually comes in cycles of seven. So we've had the seven seals, one view of history. Then we've had the seven trumpets. In a couple of chapters, we're going to have the seven bowls. But each time it says behind it all, even though there's these horrible things happening here on earth, pandemics, tyranny, all that sort of stuff, behind it all, Jesus has already secured your forgiveness and he is actually seated on the throne of heaven. And so it always goes back to that chapter 4 and chapter 5, remember we looked at them several weeks ago, where Jesus is seated on the throne with his Father and our Father. And so Revelation then points us forward to when Jesus returns. It says that is what you're looking forward to if you're a Christian. You're looking forward to that day when Jesus returns and you will get to be with him forever. And we've seen this over and over again already, so much so that if you want a, a very simple summary of the book of Revelation, it's this. Whatever it looks like, whatever's going on in this world, Jesus wins. That's the two-word summary of the book of Revelation. Whatever everything else looks like, Jesus wins. And then the application is really simple as well, so keep trusting Jesus. That's the summary of the book of Revelation. Jesus wins, so keep trusting Jesus. Which brings us to where we're up to, which is a new section in the book, like I said before, chapters 12 to 14, and this is the section where John uses all these graphic images of dragons and all that sort of stuff. So let's look at it, come with me to chapter 12, verse 1. Uh, now in our chapter, there are three scenes, it's sort of like the Lord of the Rings, actually, if I can go with the theme. Uh, there's three, it's a trilogy. So scene, chapter 1, is the mother, the baby, and the dragon, verses 1 to 6. So let's go. It says, a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet and a crown of 12 stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in labour and agony as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven. There was a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and 10 horns and on his heads were seven diadems. Now, if that's not a scary start to a story, I don't know what is, uh, because is there anything more helpless than a pregnant lady just about to give birth that there is nothing she can do to protect herself and perhaps the only thing more helpless than a pregnant lady about to give birth is a newborn baby uh, human children unlike more than any other animal human children are absolutely helpless when they are born uh, you've all seen the uh, David Attenborough sort of documentaries you know when you see an antelope running around in Africa, the mother antelope hardly stops and out comes the baby, you know, and then the baby gets up and runs and there's a lion, but I'll run away. It's all fine. That is not a human baby, is it? We are helpless for years, sometimes into our 30s for some of us, you know. Um, and so there's a father over here. Who, anyway, we won't go there. Here is this helpless lady and the baby and what is waiting for them but the thing that every culture has always been more scared of has tied to being, you know, frightened than just about anything else, and that's a dragon. There's nothing more powerful and horrible than a dragon. And as if to stress the point, look, it's red, it's fiery, it has seven heads, it has ten horns. You're meant to be horrified by this. 
And so then it says, though, that it's no friendly dragon. It's not like the one in Shrek, as someone pointed out to me this morning. Look at verse 4. It says, And the dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she did give birth, he might devour her child. You're meant to visualise this in all its awfulness. Here is a woman about to give birth, and the dragon is there waiting to eat the baby. This baby is not going to live. So who is this mother? And who is this baby? And who is this dragon? Well, I hope, as we've already seen in Revelation, once you look closely, you look at the you look at first and you think, what's this talking about? This is crazy. But then once you look a bit closer, you actually work it out. This is talking about the coming of Jesus. Uh, you can't help but think of Mary as you think of this mother, can you? That's what you, you think of. But I don't think it's actually just Mary. Mary's more representing all of Israel, God's people on earth. You see, the 12 stars are a picture of Israel. A uh, picture of the 12 tribes of Israel and that's actually already been the case in Revelation and even back in the Old Testament when Joseph had his vision of the future of Israel it was the other 11 stars which were the other tribes bowing down to his star uh, and so that idea that this would be Israel is not uncommon and so this is Jesus that's who the baby is the Messiah of Israel about to be born out of God's people And so as she waits to deliver the child, here is this dragon. And again, I don't think you need to be a rocket scientist to work out who the dragon is. Uh, But if you didn't work it out, it's spelled out for you down in verse 9. So go to verse 9, it says, this is the ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. What you are seeing here in this story is actually an incredibly vivid retelling of the Christmas story. That's what this is. Uh, one Christmas, I'm going to preach on Revelation chapter 12 instead of the opening chapters of Luke or Matthew. I think I'll save it for the kids' Christmas carols. You know, I think, I think some of our little children will love being the dragon rather than a sheep one year. But anyway, now that's what the story is though, isn't it? When Jesus came, what happened? The devil tried everything to stop him. The moment he was born, the devil used King Herod to have all the baby boys under two killed. That was the devil at work. He had all the boys massacred. But Jesus escaped, if you remember, to Egypt. And for the rest of his life and ministry, if you read any of the four Gospels, Jesus was fighting against the devil. And so from the very start of his ministry, what did he do? He went out into the desert for 40 days and 40 nights, and the devil tried to tempt him. The devil tried to turn him aside from doing what he had come to do. And then everywhere Jesus went, who did he face around every corner? demonic opposition that wasn't normal you don't come across demons as you as you walk around Sydney it was that moment in history the de- the devil through his demons was opposing Jesus and then finally at the end the devil entered Judas so that Jesus was betrayed and went to his death but just when the devil thought he had won Jesus even defeated death and so look at verse 5 it says but she gave birth to a son so he couldn't stop Jesus being born And then it says that son was a male who is going to shepherd all nations with an iron scepter and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Now that verse is like the shortest summary of the gospel in history. It jumps from Jesus' birth straight to when he ascended to heaven after his resurrection to be with his heavenly father. Uh, The idea is though all of Jesus' ministry is captured in that verse and the point is the devil could not stop Jesus' birth and he couldn't stop Jesus teaching people the truth about God And the devil couldn't stop Jesus dying for our sins. And the devil couldn't stop Jesus rising from the dead and defeating death. And so after all of that, after Jesus had done all those things, God caught him up. That is, God took him up to be with him 
seated in the heavens where he now rules. And so the point of this first scene is really, really simple. The devil did not get his way. That's the point of the first scene. The devil did not succeed. And in fact, Jesus smashed the devil. Jesus didn't just escape the devil, he defeated the devil. Which brings us to scene two up on the screen. Uh, And this is second part of our trilogy, the war in the heavens, verses 7 to 11. We don't like to talk too much about angels and demons and all that sort of stuff, do we? Uh, It makes us look a bit weird. So when you're talking to your friends at work or at uni or wherever you are and you're talking about uh, Jesus' death and resurrection, you tend not to focus on what that means for angels and what that means for demons. You tend to focus on what it means for you. Personally, that's okay. You tell people, our sins are forgiven because Jesus died for me. We, We have the promise of eternal life because Jesus died and rose again. We are adopted as God's children and that is all true and that is all wonderful and that's what I want you to be telling people about. I'm not encouraging you to go talking about demons and angels all the time but something else was happening too. In Jesus' ministry and then in his death and resurrection a spiritual battle was being fought in the heavens when Jesus died on that cross. See, in his death and resurrection, Jesus was robbing Satan of all of his power. He was defeating the devil because what the devil wants more than anything else is what? He wants people to not know God. That's what the devil wants more than anything else. He wants people to not know God. But Jesus opened up the floodgates so that people from every tribe, every nation, every tongue can come to know God and call him their father. He smashed the devil's hold over this world. And what the devil wants more than anything else is for people to keep sinning and to keep facing God's judgment. That is what he wants. But Jesus died so that we could be forgiven, so that we could come to God without fear. You see, Satan's great power before Jesus was to accuse you. Have you ever read the book of Job? It opens with this picture of the heavens where Satan stands before God and points out the sin of humanity to God. That's why he's called the accuser. That's who he is. Satan's great power was to say, they are not good enough for you. You must judge them. And to say to us, you are not good enough for God. How could he ever love you? That power has been ripped away from the devil by the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so in his death and resurrection, Jesus wasn't just saving humanity, as wonderful as that was. He wasn't just dying for your sins, as wonderful as that was. He was destroying the hold that the devil had over you and over me and over this whole world. And so John gives us an incredible way of visualizing that in this next scene. Look at verse 7. It says, Then war broke out in heaven. Michael, that's God's number one angel, the archangel, like the archbishop, the archangel Michael and his angels fought against the dragon. The dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail and there was no place for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was thrown out. The ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world, he was thrown to earth and his angels with him. This will mean nothing to any of you because this movie happened in the early 80s. But has anyone ever seen Flash Gordon other than my children? I've made them watch Flash Gordon. I visualize, for those of you, go watch Flash Gordon. It's one of the great science fiction movies of all time. That's your lesson for today. No. But in that movie, there are these hawk men fighting. In their, I do sound like I'm one of those guys who's into dragons and all that stuff now, don't I? But anyway... 
That's what I visualize here. Now you've got to ask, is this literal? Was, was there an actual war in the heavens where angels are there shooting one another and, or doing whatever angels do? Uh, was it that when Satan saw that he'd lost, that Jesus had died for our sins and risen from the dead, did he try to storm the, the very gates of heaven and, and knock God off his throne? Or is this more a metaphorical picture? You know, to make the point that when Jesus died and rose again, the devil was defeated and so was cast out of heaven I must admit, I just don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But the point is really simple. The point is the devil has been defeated. The devil has been cast out of heaven so he can no longer stand there and accuse you before God. Jesus talked about this in in Luke's gospel. It'll come up on the screen. Uh, As he was on his way to the cross, he said to his disciples, I watched Satan fall from heaven like a lightning flash. That's what what he was talking about, the defeat of the devil. Some Christians fear the devil. Probably Christians from our sort of school, our sort of church, if anything, our danger is to not think about the devil enough. We think too rationally, if you like, about the world. But some Christians are the opposite and they fear the devil as if somehow he might win, somehow he might take away their salvation. No, Jesus has smashed the devil. And so John hears a loud voice from heaven to confirm it. Look from verse 10. He says, Then I heard a loud voice in heaven say, The salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Messiah have now come because the accuser, the devil, of our brothers has been thrown out. The one who accuses them before our God day and night, they conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. The devil's power has been stripped away. He's been defeated and the weapon God used, look again at verse 11, is the blood of the lamb. That is Jesus' death on the cross and in particular, the testimony about that. As people preach the gospel, the devil is wiped away. See, because if you trust in Jesus, your sin is forgiven and the devil has nothing to say to you. By knowing that truth, you are immune to the devil. The devil loves to whisper in our ear. He loves to say to you, God couldn't possibly accept you. You're not good enough for God. Those sort of things. And the thing is, if you don't trust in Jesus, he's absolutely right. He's not lying at that point. But if you do trust in Jesus, then you can say, get lost, Satan. I know I'm not good enough for God, but that doesn't matter because Jesus' blood has washed me clean. Jesus died for me. Romans 8 One of my favourite passages captures this so well. It'll come up on the screen. Verse 33, the Apostle Paul asks like a rhetorical question. Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? Well, before Jesus, the answer to that question was the devil. But now the answer is no one can. And he goes on, if we go to the next slide, he says, For I am persuaded that not even death or life, not even angels, whether they're good ones or bad ones, or rulers, things present or things to come, hostile powers like the devil, height or depth or any other created thing, nothing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That is Christian assurance. I want to tell you that is the most important thing to know. I pray you have that assurance. I pray that when if someone asked you the question, if you walked out of church tonight and dropped dead, would you go to heaven? You would say, yes, I would. With absolute certainty. Not because you're an arrogant whatever who thinks you're good, but the opposite, because you say, because Jesus' blood has washed my clean and so nothing can separate me from the love of God. I, I hope, I pray you have that assurance. And if you don't, 
I want to share it with you tonight. So come and talk to me after church. I don't want you to leave without knowing that assurance. Come to the life course. That's where you'll hear more about it. But come to know that truth. Jesus has won the battle. The devil has been defeated. Now, all that sounds great, but there's one final scene, the final movie, if you like, in the trilogy, uh, and that is the death throes of the dragon, verses 13 to 18. I have a guilty secret, and that is I really love watching television programs on those obscure new channels on television, like Seven Mate and Nine Gem and all those sort of things. You know those channels where when you've got nothing to watch and you, you get home, it's nine thirty, and you flick around and you find something about blokes mining gold in the Arctic or something like that. I love those channels uh, and I particularly love them because they have fishing shows and I was watching one on Seven Mate a little while ago and these guys pr- bought, they caught, they didn't buy it, they caught it, a pretty big shark uh, and amazingly they brought it into the boat. We, when we were fishing on holidays, we caught a catfish that long and I said, don't bring it into the boat and cut the line. But these guys brought a, a show like from me to the edge of the stage there and they brought it into the boat and so as they tried to get the hook out of this shark, it just went off in the boat and it was smashing everything, fishing rods going everywhere, the guy's getting knocked over. The shark wasn't getting away. He wasn't getting back into the water where he wanted to be. In a few minutes, he was going to be dead. The shark had lost. He'd lost the fight. The moment they got him out of the water and into that boat, he was gone. But I can tell you, he was angry about it. And in his last few minutes, he was going to wreak absolute havoc. And I think that is a wonderful picture of what the devil is like. The devil is like that shark. Look at the end of verse 12. It says, therefore rejoice you heavens and you who dwell in them. So it's saying, hey, you angels in heaven and and people who've gone to be with the Lord in the heavens, you can rejoice because the devil's not there. But look at what it says, woe to the earth, that's where we are, and the sea, for the devil has come down to you with great fury because he knows he has a short time. See, this is the reality now for the devil. He has been defeated. His power to accuse us and take away our salvation is gone. devil can't do anything to you on that front. His end is certain. He's out of the water. He's in the boat. Now, when Jesus returns, sin and evil and the devil will be banished forever. And so now, though, in this little time now we live in, between Jesus' two comings, his first coming and his return, The devil is out to cause as much damage as he can in this short time he has left. And all that the devil wants now is to make it as hard as possible for you to be a Christian. That's all he wants. All he wants now is to make it as hard as possible for you to be a Christian. And he started with the first Christians. Look at verse 13. It says, when the dragon saw that he'd been thrown to earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. Now, as I said before, that's not Mary. It's not like he persecuted Mary specifically. I think the woman represents the first Jewish Christians, the the true Israel, those first people, the Jews that Jesus came to who believed in him, they became the church. And so Satan, well, he couldn't crush Jesus, so he tries to crush the church. And you can read about that in the book of Acts. You'll know he used the Jewish leaders, tried to have the apostles killed. He tried to he used Herod and, and the other, his sons and all that sort of thing to try to have them crushed. And he used the Roman Empire to try to knock them off. Everything failed. It's interesting. There is no human explanation for the way the church survived. It's the greatest miracle just about of history. 
that the church survived and grew. There is no human explanation for how this little group of Jewish people survived the persecution they faced and then spread the gospel to the world. The only answer is it's a miracle of God. And that is the picture here. Look for verse 14. It talks about God giving his people wings to escape. He feeds his people. He protects his people from danger. Some people think this is talking about literal events where the Christians fled from Jerusalem under the persecution and went out into the wilderness to survive. That might be right, but I think it's more a a general picture of how God looked after his people and didn't let Satan crush his church. See, the point is Satan, he did awful things. Many of them were killed. All of them were persecuted. But he didn't win. God kept his church alive. But even then, Satan didn't give up. And look at the final part of the passage. Look from verse 17. It says, So the dragon was furious with the woman and left to wage war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's commands and have the testimony about Jesus. So he couldn't crush those first Jewish Christians. So he said, I'll have a go at the ones in Ephesus. And I'll have a go at the ones in Rome. The people who... This letter is first written to, I'll have a go at them. And then when he couldn't crush them, he said, I'll have a go at the ones in China. And I'll even have a go at the ones in Sydney. But the point is, wherever people are trying to keep God's commands, wherever people are sharing the testimony about Jesus, Satan will be there to make it hard for us. But God will ensure his church survives. So as I wrap up, what do we take from this? Three quick final points. The first is... Christians should expect persecution. It shouldn't surprise us when people oppose the preaching of the gospel. It shouldn't surprise us when people stand up against faithful teaching of God's word. It shouldn't surprise us when the government is against Christianity. And sometimes it is full-on state-based oppression like happened in the Roman Empire or like Christians in communist countries or Muslim countries face today. Other times, though, it's much smaller scale. might be mockery. Uh, It might be from our own family. It might be exclusion by friends. But one of the certainties of life is that we will be persecuted. The Apostle Paul actually promised you that. Look at it on the screen. He says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says, in fact, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's fairly thorough, isn't it? Not some will be persecuted, all those. It's not an optional extra. In fact, I think it's a really useful guide. If our church or you as a Christian are loved by the world, if non-Christians say, oh, I don't like Christians, but I like you, then perhaps you're not sharing the gospel very clearly. Or perhaps you're not living a godly life. Perhaps you look just like the world around you. Because if you look different and if you stand up for Jesus, well, then you will face some sort of persecution. So don't be rocked. Don't be surprised if you face opposition for your faith. Expect it. Be ready for it. Second point, and that is rather than then letting that challenge your faith, let it remind you that Jesus has won. You see, what this passage has told us is that the reason Satan has it in for God's people is because he couldn't beat Jesus. He couldn't devour Jesus. You see, strangely, when Christians are persecuted, you should say, that is wonderful, because that's happening because Jesus has already won the victory. So don't let struggles and pains and persecution make you stop trusting in Jesus. That is the the saddest, silliest thing in the world. If someone says, I'm going to stop being a Christian because it's hard. 
Because in fact, the very fact that it's hard shows you that Jesus has won. Let it inspire you to trust him more. Third thing, it's a reminder that we are in a spiritual battle. When a communist dictator bans Christians from meeting together, on the one hand, that is just a human decision that that person's made. It's just a political decision. He knows, I don't want people getting together and talking about Jesus as king. I want to be king. That's, that's what's going on there. Behind it all is the devil. When your university group says that your Christian group can't use a room for Bible study. Now, often that's a political decision to keep certain people happy or it might just be administrative incompetence. There's all sorts of human reasons why that might happen. Behind it all is the devil. When your high school Christian group, when the principal says, oh no, we can't have that on a Friday lunchtime. If you want to come to the Christian group, you've got to come at 7am on Wednesdays, you know, to make it hard for anyone to come and to invite your friends. Now behind that is, again, probably administrative incompetence or whatever. But behind it all is the devil too. And so when someone mocks you, for believing in a God you can't see. On the one hand, that is their ignorance, but the devil is behind that too. And so we don't fight that by using worldly means of fighting. We don't fight by mocking them back or by playing politics or all those things human beings do. Our battle is spiritual. And so as the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians 6, it'll come up on the screen, our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against spiritual forces. So if you want to withstand the devil's opposition, you need to use spiritual weapons. In Ephesians 6, it talks about the full spiritual armour of God. And what is the full armour of God? It's faith. It's trusting in Jesus. It's the truth of the gospel. It's the gift of prayer. It's the gift of fellowship. And most of all, it's the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. That's how you fight the devil, by using these things that we think are so mundane, but are actually the most powerful things of all, faith in Jesus, meeting together as God's people, praying to our Heavenly Father and reading his word. They are the things you need if you're going to keep standing for Jesus, no matter what the devil throws our way. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that in his death and resurrection, Jesus was not just dying to save humanity. But he was fixing the whole world and defeating the devil once and for all. But Father, we know now that as Christians, we will face opposition. We will face persecution even, and that that comes from the devil. So Father, help us to put on that full armour of God. Help us to be people who trust in Christ. Help us to be people devoted to prayer. And help us to be people who know and love your scriptures. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.